I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Queer I Am, the podcast, live and unscripted. I am so excited to share this with you. The podcast has been recorded over eight weeks in front of a live audience at Arco Baleno, an inclusive queer space in the heart of Kemp Town, Brighton. I am so proud to be partnering with Arco Baleno and cannot thank Luciana, Nick and the whole team there enough for their support and generosity in the making of this season of the podcast. If you haven't been there before, please check it out. Not only do they have an incredible Maltese menu for you to explore, but they also have a range of cocktails, drinks and a regular schedule of entertainment for you to enjoy. The podcast is also being supported by their production company, Across Rainbows Productions, and film for YouTube. So if you didn't get to come to one of the live shows, you can find these videos at your leisure on the Across Rainbows YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe, give the videos a like, and leave any comments you may have. We also had several authors participate in the shows, and Kemptown Bookshop were on hand to sell signed books by the authors. You can check out this beautiful bookshop in the heart of Brighton, but make sure you take your credit card because you will not leave empty-handed. The shows feature a panel of guests where we'll be talking all things queer and an audience Q&A too, an opportunity for everyone to get involved in the conversation. In this episode, we'll be discussing understanding and acknowledging queer history. The show features actress, author and philanthropist Jill Nalder, writer and podcast producer Adam Smith, performer Wayne Douglas and author Darren Kay. I hope you enjoy the show. So whatever you're up to, this is your time to settle down, relax and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Queer I Am. Hello everyone, thank you all so much for coming this evening. It's so lovely to see such a lovely turnout and um, an incredible panel of guests to talk about queer history. I'm so excited about this conversation. Um, So welcome and um, we're talking queer history today 
Um, we're going to have a really open conversation. It's a safe space. And I've got questions here. But to be honest, after some of the conversations we've already had tonight, I kind of feel like I'm going to let them just do their thing and just kind of go with it. But um, we'll be recording for about an hour or so. We'll then have um, an interval and we'll be selling some books. And I'll then become a book salesperson as well, which is very fun because I get to use the chip and pin machine, which is it's the small things, but, you know, it's quite fun to use. And um, <laughs> and then afterwards, we'll be coming back for an audience q so if anyone has any questions for the panel um we would love to take those and um yeah there's lots of interesting discussions to be had today so i'd like to introduce my wonderful wonderful guests before we go any further so we have the amazing west end performer and specialized cabaret performer wayne douglas aka caravan park so big round of applause please Oh my god this applause is it's gonna sound great on the audio isn't it i love this we also have podcast producer and writer adam smith the incredible published author and owner of lots of memorabilia which you'll be seeing this evening i'm very excited about this darren darren k thank you and actress, author, philanthropist, basically all-round amazing person, Jill Nalda. This is very exciting, I have to say. <laughs> so I always do this before we start the show. You'll know this. Um, well, I think three of you will know this, actually, because I think I did it on yours as well, Jill, before. So, um, and you can't pick the same song, but I did this as a bit of an icebreaker. So if you had to pick a song right now to reflect your mood, what would your song be? And I'm going to start with you, Wayne, and it can't be Annie Lennox Little Bird. Because <laughs> you picked that last time. Um, Purple Ring. Oh, okay. Bit of Prince, nice. Yeah, because uh, only because it, it it's one of those things that to me is it 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 never stops f- feeling fresh, and mm. I love it. It's one of those songs that you can go for a long time not listening to it or thinking about it, and then you hear it again, and you think, oh my god, and then you hear it again and again, and it still has that same feeling every time I hear it. It's, it's the same, but I love it. Yeah, so fresh, lovely. Adam, well, we're going to talk about history, queer history. Mm. So the song that is in my head right now is it's all coming back to me now that song oh nice Celine bit of Celine yeah. lovely that's a karaoke favourite I can perform it for you <laughs> <laughs> I can slam the door <laughs> that's the only bit I can contribute I have tried that one on karaoke but I, I failed it wasn't very good yeah, I'm going to, we won't talk about it Darren um, I am going to go with um, We Could Be The One Danny Minogue because it's just getting so hot that I feel like I'm in a masseria yeah. Have you kissed a boy? I've kissed several boys. Yes. <laughs> but I've never been to a masseria. Has anyone been to a masseria? No. Has anyone watched I Kissed a Boy? Yes. Did you watch it? Yeah. Yeah. I Kissed a Girl is coming next year, which is very good. Yeah. Amazing. What about you, Joel? I'm going to go for fun and I'm going to go for Megan Trainer. It's all about the bass. Oh, mate. <laughs> Love this. Love this. So today, well, thank you very much for all of that. We're we're talking about queer history today. And I guess it's a really important subject matter in itself. And I've had conversations with a few of you over the last kind of 12 months or so. And we've talked about queer history and the importance of it. Um, But I think it'd be really great to share with the audience why you think it's important we're talking about queer history. So let's start with you, Wayne. Why do you got to start with me? Because you're looking at me. I'm not... (laughs) 
So are the rest of the audience, but they're not being first. Um, I think it's very important to, to know um, the history that where we come from and as a community and everything else, um, simply because so much has gone on in the past and so many people have sacrificed so many different things um, to be able to live the lives that we live now, that if we don't know our history, it's having a huge disrespect to the people who have sacrificed so much um, and have done so much for everybody just to be able to live a life. Um, so I, th I think it is really important that we know as a community where we're from, what we're going through, what we've been through, and how we can move forward and keep going and just get stronger. Because otherwise, it is paying a huge respect to even people who have lost their lives just for loving the wrong person. And I, I think that's, it is really important for that. Absolutely. Anyone else? Anything yeah, to add? Yeah, I would say that there's something really unique about queer history um, compared to other kinds of histories. Other kinds of histories are often... Um, written down or preserved in all sorts of different ways by institutions, by government, by um, museums. And there's just something about queer history that means that it won't be preserved and held by institutions or governments. And we are the ones who have to preserve it and keep it going. So, um, and that's for lots of reasons, um, because of, uh, it's, first of all, it's, it's personal stories, um, and that's often found in diaries and photo albums and things like that. And that history is just as important as anything that you can find in an official archive or something, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the second thing is that often because it's personal and because of um, the unique things about being queer is that um, often people destroy their own archives um, and they destroy their own histories or they hide them from view for understandable reasons. Um, and so it's just really important that we all need to share um, and keep sharing and keep preserving our histories because no one else is necessarily going to do it for us. Do you think it's about owning the narrative as well so that pe we're telling our own stories rather than people telling stories in the wrong way? Would you, would you agree with that? Yes. <laughs> Me, so am I, am I on? You are. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think that's an amazing thing. I think what you, well, everybody's already, but you both have already said the thoughts that are in everybody's mind. But there's also just joy in, like, just having it as part of history, a normal conversation. So and so and so and so did something brilliant, and by the way, they were gay, or by the way, that was his partner, that was her partner, so that it just becomes part of everyday normal in inverted commas, conversations where it, where it hasn't been, it hasn't sat. It's always been something that's been sort of kept a little bit secret. And so I think that's, that's important. The more it gets out there, the more beautiful it is. Yeah, yeah I'd say I, I community curated with a bunch of other people the Queer the Peer exhibition. And I'd say that the, the item that gets... I think the most warmth is a collection of photograph albums from a couple of lesbians um, called Tommy and Betty. And they were photographers in the war. And because of that, they were able to, they understood photography. So they were able to take very candid photographs of their very normal everyday life, their caravanning, their drinking, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it, it, it you know, going back to Adam's point, because we tend to, historically have not had those families to look after those those albums they were just in a house sale and they would have actually you know we talk about history being erased actually this was going to be just dumped yeah. i mean there was no sort of like homophobia involved they were just going to be chucked into the bin but thankfully james gardner saw what they were and um and so the the collection is now been saved 
by Worthing Museum, which is fantastic, about 60 albums, photograph albums of lesbians. So any lesbians in the audience, it's full of lesbians everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Do you think there is a risk with the younger generation coming up not understanding or acknowledging queer history? Oh, totally. I I see it so much... um, in the when you know wherever I'm performing or whatever, and seeing um, younger people within the bars and the clubs, and it, you get a mixed, a real mixed sort of like you know demographic in places, and you have the older ones who are standing there having a great time, you know, and things. But you will see the younger ones who are so full of themselves. I'm not saying all of them, so don't anybody jump down my throat with this because I'm not. But you get some that are just looking at the older ones and just looking at them as if, they're, as if they're nothing, if they shouldn't be there. They're too old, you shouldn't be there. They haven't got the right trainers on, they haven't got the right haircut, they're not using the right cream on the face or whatever. And you can see this look going through them and it's like, without this person here now, the person that you are looking down your nose at, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be able to walk down the streets here in Brighton holding your partner's hand or whatever. You wouldn't be able to do the things that you're doing. You sure as hell wouldn't be living the life that you're living now. And that I find unreal that the, the younger ones need to know exactly what they've gone through and exactly what we've all gone through and what we will still and continue to go through. But they don't, they don't seem to think that it's important because things are so much easier. There's a definitely a, a cyclical sort of process to it. And, and again, going back to the exhibition, one of the, the items that I really love is actually the, the Sussex Gay Liberation Front um, standing outside the War Memorial in 1973, basically commemorating um, queer people who died in the war. And I always end on this particular photograph because I think you're right. I think there was a younger generation, and even, you know, community curators on the exhibition, they... Um, they were not really aware of, of that kind of thing. And I'd, I'd, I'd end on that photograph because there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of a feeling of, of, of sort of strength and visibility in 1973. You had no idea what shit fest was coming around the corner. And actually, you know, it's good to be able to end on, on that one and say, you know, don't take for granted these rights because there's always someone somewhere that wants to take them back again. So history is good in that sense because it is cyclical. Cyclical, it's, you know, it goes round. It's a good word, yeah. yeah. I mean, and as people, though, as people get older, as we all get older, then you appreciate history more. It's something about when you're young, you don't have the same head on you, and as you get older, you think more and more about where, you know, societies have come from, and I think that, you know, all those people that are young now will be getting older and appreciating it more as they get older. Because I didn't do GCSE history. I, I gave up. I, you know, you could choose do your options in year nine and you didn't have to carry on doing history if you didn't want to and I didn't um I did like geography and music and other choices but I didn't do history because I was like I'm not bothered it certainly old, wouldn't have been taught queer history in old school. stuff <laughs> no 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 but that's it but no, that's, it wouldn't I mean, have been included and we'll come on to that in a bit God, a whole question but on that's that, yeah. I mean that's that's you, you you know you touch on that you're saying you wouldn't be taught it in school but it's like you you just said about um there's always someone who's ready to take that away from us uh, rights or whatever and you're right there is um because I remember when I, when I was younger, enough, we seemed to be, we seemed to go in the right, the right direction and we seemed to gain some momentum of, of where we were going as a community and some respect. And then all of a sudden, Clause 28 came in. And there's always someone who's there ready to take, we take two steps forward, one step back. And it's like, really? They just wanted to, no, nah, it's I mean, wrong. 
Cause Play Out is something I definitely want to talk about today. Um, and I think what I would say as well to everyone is that, you know, there is so much queer history that we could go through. But I think based on the panel tonight, I think I probably want to start beginning of the 80s. Because I think that it's going to resonate with a lot of people in terms of the contributions you can all make. And, you know, if you there is so much, you know, information out there now about queer history, you know, that predates that. But I think that's going to be very topical for this conversation. So... I guess for Darren and Wayne, and Adam, I don't know your age. I'm not going to ask you to reveal that, but I'm thinking we're probably of a similar age. I'm 38. I am too. So I'm born in 80, 84. 84. Yeah, yeah. so, so we would year. experience school, et cetera, the same. So, and so I'm really interested from Darren and, um, sorry, Wayne and Darren's perspective in terms of the early 80s, because I guess... Well, being, first of all, it was illegal. Yeah, I mean, it's pr- pretty <laughs> underground. And so I guess, my first three boyfriends, I was breaking the law. Yeah. At the age of consent yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it was a, a pretty underground. I mean, if you, you know, we watch. We'll talk about it's a sin in a bit, but you watch the programs or documentaries about that time. I guess it's very secretive. It's very much kind of, you know, keep yourself to yourself. And yeah. then there was this mysterious virus, and everything started to evolve. So, what was it like for you both at that time to kind of? Absolutely. Well, for me, absolutely, absolutely terrifying. Mm. It actually, as I said to you before, I think that. That gay men, I'm I'm 56, so I think coming out in 1985, 1984, 85, just as um, this chap here was very, very uh, big in the world. Um, Rock Hudson um, comes out as um, uh, having an age-related disease, and and the homophobia which already existed in the mining village that I grew up on obviously went off the scale. Um, and you have people saying, don't sit next to him, he's got AIDS. You know, it was that sort of, that was the culture that we grew up in. And I think that kind of fear stays with you for forever and ever. I don't think even now in 2023, I, I feel that, it, you know, it's, it's trauma, it's, I guess, isn't it, it? Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, it's thanks to, to Jill and Russell T. Davis um, bringing it to sin. I think people of my, my age, my generation, that finally feel that we can actually talk about it, that, because we survived it, we can still talk about it. It is allowed. We have permission. I think that's a very real thing. And it is Russell who, you know, brought that out there and wrote it to sin and brought it into the sort of mainstream of entertainment. And that, that's, I think, changed an awful lot of attitudes to HIV and AIDS. I, I really do think it because what the feedback that has come to me and to Russell, he can't even, he can't even believe it himself for how, how, uh, positive the feedback has been from all corners and and when it's a sin won the nta award and russell himself said that was th- that was what he was most proud of because that was everybody just the public had voted for that award the national television award and that meant more to him because it was kind of a an acceptance of the story in the country in general and and so i think that that is that you know that that's moved forward and people talk about it much more easily much more easily and never saw that coming no, nobody saw that coming i don't think i mean when i i first when i came out um literally as aids hit and it was publicized everywhere and you know you had the the tv commercial of the tombstone and and it was somewhere and that and i was like oh god i couldn't have chosen a worse time for my family and my friends or anything else. um I remember the first gay venue that I went to. I was brought up in Birmingham. And the first gay venue I went to was the old Nightingale Club. Not the one that is now, but it was round at the stage door of the Hippodrome Theatre. And 
it was literally just a door. That was it. You had to know that it was there and it was a door with a little thing that opened and you had to ring the bell and the security would open the door and say, oh, yeah, yeah, look at you. And if they didn't think you were gay, there's no way on this earth they were going to open the door. And it was that kind of encased. It was unbelievable. And when it got really bad, the venue were actually making sure that nobody left alone. Nobody was allowed to leave. You had to leave in groups and you would go across and they would find out where you were going so you could all walk to the bus stop together and things like that. Because it's, it was getting really dangerous. People were literally going out, finding, looking for groups that they could just, you know, attack. And it, that was scary. It really was scary because you didn't want to go out. You didn't want to do anything. You weren't allowed to be yourself. You didn't want to be yourself because you didn't know what was going to happen. Do you feel like you were kind of both always looking over your shoulder? Like, obviously, you know who you were, but this kind of fear and secret and trying to totally. conform. I mean, I mean, completely. Yeah, I knew who I was, and there was nowhere on this earth. I was, I, as a kid, I was like, say kid. I was actually quite political, and I was like, no, 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 I don't want to go on CND marches and Green and Common and everything else. You know, I wanted to raise, wave my banner the same as anybody else. And I knew who I was, and there was nowhere on this earth once I'd come out that I was going to go back in and not be the person that I wanted to be. But it was scary as hell. Really was. And it was just, nah, it wasn't, uh, really wasn't a good time. To have things that go on now and to, like, it's a sin, is amazing to see, to see it almost celebrated and to be allowed to actually talk about it. And it is amazing. I have had so many people who have watched this show and said that it was exaggerated, it was a dramatisation, it was exaggerated. And it's like, nah. It wasn't. My friend who was a nurse at the time, he was like, no, this did happen when he was locked in a room on his own, that sort of thing. It's not exaggerated. This is real. It was as real. And so many other people, friends of mine who lived through it, we all went through it, had to watch it in little bits because it was too much sometimes. It brought back too many memories because it was so realistic for us. Uh, I, I, what was that about? It's a sin being able to revisit it mentally was really cathartic because actually there was so much homophobia on the back of of HIV and AIDS. The newspapers, they reveled in it. And you it became something that just was so normalised. You got used to being hated by what seemingly was sort of everyone. Um, and you just... It was a bit like being bullied at school. You just got used to it. You just got used to it every day. And sort of... It, it was quite weird when you sort of... Um, you get into the 90s and that's not happening. And you're sort yeah. of like thinking, oh my God, this is... This it was, is... Yeah, it was one of those things you expect it and you're waiting for it. And when it doesn't happen, you're like, what the fuck's happened? What, uh, I mean, why aren't you slapping me? I mean, Alf's, Alf in the audience, uh, he's got a, a historian and he's got a footage of 1992 Gay Pride in Brighton. It's 94. And it's just interesting looking at it because there's virtually no one on either side of the pavement. And everyone looks absolutely terrified. And I remember being on that march thinking, God, can we get to Preston Park? Can we get to Preston Park? It was, it was it, you know, and it, it gradually it became, there was more people on the pavements than there were on the march. And that, you know, when I well, see well, that, my heart just lifts. It's just uh, incredible. Well, one of my friends that sadly did pass away and, and died from AIDS was from the Isle of Man. So try and find a gay pride march oh, on the Isle God. of Man. I mean, that just didn't exist. You know, that, that, that was a really sort of, and it, and it has changed. I do say that now. And they are making a huge difference there. And there's a lot of people working very hard. But that was a place that was so, you know, close. And to find that you were 
well, to know that you were gay, because he always knew he was gay, but then to find out that he was HIV positive or at the point where he was diagnosed, was told it, well, he had AIDS, then it was a complete fear. How was that show for you? I mean, we can talk about it as in a bit, but I think we may as well carry on with that conversation because it is just one of the most amazing shows. And so unlike you, I I guess I didn't experience the same trauma from that time because I was quite young. But I think one of the first things my parents said to me when I came out in 2004 was, I'm really worried you're going to get ill. You know, the the trauma for people, I guess maybe uneducated views or just the propaganda, people didn't really understand what they were talking about. So it was almost like the thing to say. Um, but how was that for you? Because I guess, we, I mean, we've talked before, but it was you had to hold a lot of kind of stories and support for a lot of people. And, you know, you were a, an ally, but also someone that was really in the thick of it. So kind of making that show, did that kind of help you heal? Or what was that like for you? Do you know what? It's an ongoing journey with the with the shows because it's just, it keeps happening. And there's, there's stories coming out all the time. And, and I have had some beautiful comments sent to me personally and about it's a sin and everything but I did have an experience with a young boy who was um, at an event I was in Battersea at an event and he came to me backstage very upset 20 said I'm 20 and I've never been able to tell anyone that I'm HIV positive and of course he's obviously told his doctors because he was being treated but he couldn't tell his friends at work he couldn't tell anybody anything and so I think that that whole the whole it's a sin experience has you know it, it it keeps on making a difference and it keeps on doing different things and it's it's hard to describe I think because it's not just me, it's nothing, it's not me, it's everybody that lived through it, it's everybody's stories, people like you've just said yourself, you know, you relived it, you go back through it, people go back through it in their own way, they recall it, they get traumatised by the memory, or they find something beautiful in the memory, or they have a right laugh, because there's nobody, you know, and I said this the other night, you know, you have gay men, no offence, to anybody else but gay men have a brilliant sense of humor on a lot of occasions and you have fun and so their boys were out there and yes you can't be open and yourself everywhere but amongst your own where you have a safe space people had great humor and and I think that gave people courage and helped people the, the gay men I know anyway they had a brilliant sense of humor and they they took everything you know head on really and and used humor to fight it but I th- yeah, I think that's one of the things, though, is that you, you've just said um, they used humour to fight it. I think over the years, we have, as a community, we've had to deal with so much crap that all we can do is laugh and find the humour in everything because if we don't, we'll just get so depressed and so bogged down. We have to find the humour and the fun in every single thing. Well, yeah, I do remember the first marches. It was two, four, six, say, is that copper really straight? <laughs> Three, five, seven, nine, does his wife ring, ring lesbian line? Oh, I see. I mean, there was, it was, you know, we're here, we're queer, we're not going shopping. It was, there was a, there was a way of sort of camp, and this is sort of 1984, 85 gay marches before they were 
um, in big parks, and there was there was an awful lot of an awful lot of humour, and I and I think and I think that's sometimes when we talk about history that we get we we could get sidelined and talk a lot about the politics and, and you know obviously clause 28 and 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 A's are huge parts of our history but i think sometimes we forget the, yeah, the, yeah, the, the yeah. because cre- you know gay people work in a lot of those industries where they are just bloody funny yeah, yeah absolutely. but i think we, we kind of have to find the humor in it but i've got a question for you because this hasn't you, happened all season i know do you know what i mean hell yeah whatever so i mean you're you're saying to us you know how was it reliving the show and everything else but I'm very curious because you're you know different generation well to me you are um how did it seem to you because we saw it in one way and for yourself who are seeing it probably for the first time from reality point how was that for you it was heartbreaking and I think I I binged five episodes so I watched it all oh well done Jeez. so I literally in one evening was excited fell in love grieved was upset angry there was just so many different facets to the whole show and i thought it was beautifully portrayed but i i remember like really crying on the sofa and the next day my husband still hasn't watched it um and we were talking about it and i was saying about it and as i was talking about it i was the tears were literally just rolling down my eyes because i I felt a, a profound kind of sadness for that time but also a deep i guess appreciation and respect as well and i think that's what it did it it kind of made people wake up and say actually this happened and people's lives were really affected it wasn't just the propaganda or the false news stories it was real people and real families and i thought it was heartbreaking um what about you did you watch it all at once i didn't watch it all in once uh i think that would have been really hard for me uh, but um, so yeah, we're of the same generation as we've discovered, and we're that sort of like middle generation where we came of age um, at a time where it was still very present and still dominant. Um, HIV/AIDS, I'm talking about. But we were learning to live with it. But, but people were living with it, and socially, culturally, we were learning to live with it. But there was still things go in waves, don't they? And I think that it, that the social attitudes were still massively lagging behind the clinical progress that had been made by the time that we came of age. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I'm kind of, but I just, rem- I know I, um, I mean, I feel like um, this is the Russell T. Davis appreciation show, which is great, <laughs> wonderful. But I was 15 when Queer as Folk was on the telly. So just perfect. I mean, I was Nathan Maloney's age. Um, and I'm just, you know, sitting there watching that secretly and quietly in my bedroom. But that was I had unbelievable. A TV in my bedroom. Yeah. I know it was unbelievable. I mean, yeah. the, the, one of the opening scenes, he's watching this guy rimming this guy. And you're like, <laughs> the first time any, anything like that had even been possible. No, yeah. We'd never I didn't know, seen it before. I didn't know what rimming was. I sat there watching I was it. Like, just oh, going, oh, that's a thing. <laughs> you can lick someone's bum hole. And now, look at you. <laughs> but now I'm a champion rimmer. But do you but, know, every person, so we've had about five people talk about this on the rimming. show. Not rimming, no. <laughs> season four. The season, season four, yeah, the rimming show. Um, no, about Queer as Folk. And every person that's talked about it says, I secretly watched it in my bedroom with the volume down, black and white, you know. I so made videotapes. But I guess what I'm saying is that like, I, you know, that was, that was a sexual awakening for me. Um, and I was 15 and it still took me 
actually 14 years to have sex after that. I didn't have sex until I was 29 um, and came out as gay then. So, <laughs> you know, it was an awakening, but then I was sort of like still comatose for a long time. But um, uh, so that was that was amazingly important, but hang, but still hanging over that whole that whole period. And then the rest of it for me was also this fear of HIV and AIDS. And my parents said the same thing when I did, even when I did eventually come out, which would have been 2014 or something, um, you know, they were still worried about my sexual health, but not in a supportive, caring way, I think, from in, a, in an ignorant way. Um, and then I had done... But by the time It's a Sin came out, I had done quite a lot of work in, um, uh, in uh, queer history, but also specifically covering HIV-AIDS in um, the Logbooks podcast, which is another podcast that I made. Um, which and, is amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I'd interviewed people who are your age and your generation and even um, uh, other, gener- like other generations, people who were in their 70s. Um, and I'd interviewed those, those elders and heard their stories. And then I'd like spent time like editing it all together and like making these episodes about this. So I felt like, and I'd read lots of books about it. So then I felt like, you know, quite up to scratch. I'd kind of been reckoning with this this thing that I'd grown up in this like this fog of it and then through the work that I had done it kind of became clearer and then you see it dramatized in an artistic creative way with characters who have emotions and it just became even clearer for me and it also kind of confirmed for me the work that I do and want to do and the reasons why and all of that stuff and um so yeah that was my experience of it i think your work is so important because you know when i i came out in 2004 when i was 19 and i'd had no sex education about you know gay life and literally just had no clue so you know baby oil is not a lubricant just want to point that out um (laughs) but it's but it's it's those things and and it's like but i think the important stuff sex education and sexual health you know we had um wonderful richard angel on a few weeks ago from the terence higgins trust ceo and he was talking about prep and talking about the the advancements that we're making with uh, medication and you know um by 2030 the goal is to have no new cases of hiv in the uk which is just incredible but they still get very little funding, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, you're saying that you're by 2030 having no new cases of HIV, that to us, I wonder about you, but to me, that's like, what? That, it would be incredible, of course it would, absolutely incredible, but there will always be somebody out there who just believes it's never going to happen to them. He is that and, person, the Richard Angel, he's a person who inspires people and, and he makes you believe that that can happen because he is really sort of... Very proactive in in that challenge, and I, I, it makes me think it is possible. It is possible. I just really think it is, and I I, I think that obviously there'll always be skeptics and uh, people who are pessimistic or cynical or whatever, and fine. And um, we it's have not that to f- I'm, I'm skeptical or, or cynical yeah. about it. It's just that because we've lived with HIV no, for yeah, so many years, the idea of not it's having almost it, beyond the imagination, not being there is yeah. is quite unbelievable. It is, and it and it, it is unbelievable. Um, but I also think that when it, um, I think it is clinically, it is possible um epidemiologically socially it's it's difficult because the more we get closer to that goal um 
the harder it is to find the people that need to be um, diagnosed or on treatment. Um, and in a way, that's where the, that is already where the challenge is. Um, people like me who are sexually active um, and aware of these, aware of this, have uh, a more, much more likely to have, and also comfortable with my sexuality, are also much more likely to have a regular STI test as I do every few months. Whereas the people who are straight, um, straight men, but who are fucking other men, can I say fuck? Say whatever you, you just want. Did. You already say did. Fuck, <laughs> Um, people who are, do you know what I mean? Like. People, who are, people who are straight men but fucking other men um, or from different kinds of communities, different kinds of locations, um, you know, the, it, it's harder to reach. And so it's, gonna, it's kind of like a problem that gets harder and harder the closer you get to the, to, the, to the end goal. But I also just think, and this is true not just of HIV but also other sexually transmitted infections, that we have to inhabit this space of belief and hope that it's possible to eradicate them all. Because we're in this, we're in this weird period where we're like um, talking about how AI is gonna um, completely revolutionize so many jobs, positive or negative, jobs and, and lifestyles and everything. We can imagine so much amazing things. Apple's just brought out this like weird VR thing that means you can like do a minority report stuff. And yet you say to someone, but oh, you know, what about eradicating STIs? And they're like, oh, like, I don't know, really. I'm not sure about that. Which I know is not what you're saying. Yeah. And I'm like, bloody hell, we're, we're going we're gonna to put another, we're going to put a moon base on. They're talking about putting a moon base on. Like, why can't we imagine the eradication of this? And the, the reason why people are skeptical about it is because they know that it's all, that the challenge is about eradicating shame and ignorance. And that's the hard thing. But that's why we have to keep going. It's not just a scientific problem. It's yeah. a social and cultural problem. I think Richard said there was some, the number, I don't want to quote the number, but a few thousand people in the UK who had undiagnosed HIV. And I think there was a, a situation a few months ago where there was a, a lady who lost her life and it was a textbook situation. Like she had all of the symptoms, but because she was a woman, she wasn't asked the right questions when she had her clinical assessment, um, either a doctor or a sexual health clinic or somewhere. And she had all of the symptoms and then she finally had an HIV test and died two days later so well, it's like we a, have to also change the narrative about how we talk about sexual health right and, and there's we... a there's a trial happening right now which will be running for a couple of years which is um uh it's a trial that's happening in, in, a, in a small number of hospitals because it's a trial so that anyone who comes into a and e with whatever problem if they get bloods done then they also test for hiv it's even if here. there's no it's in brighton is it um, and they've already they've published some preliminary res, uh, results, and they found that they are finding new diagnoses that way. And the point is that person didn't present into the hospital with anything that would lead you to think that they might um, ha uh, be HIV positive, um, but they're just being tested anyway. And the reason why that's been blocked for so long is just because um, clinical staff. Um, are scared about, um, understandably, scared about telling a person, oh, we're just going to test you for HIV as well, um, because people are like, well, it's got nothing to do with me, you know, like, scared about that, and patients are worried about it. But of course it makes sense, and they're finding, they've already found um, enough cases that they know that it, this will be a significant, um, uh, a big tool in reaching that goal, a, you know, a big help in reaching that goal by finding those undiagnosed cases from people that don't present to hospitals with any symptoms yet and that don't test regularly. Um, and I'm sure that the, the trial will find um, that, yes, this is a sensible thing to do. In the long term for the NHS, it's way more cost-effective to have an early diagnosis, get people on treatment. And then, of course, for the individual concerned, people need to be on treatment. And yeah. then they'll, um, their life expectancy is 
um, fine <laughs> and great. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Right, and, and also, they don't, you know, you equals you. So Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Get them on treatment. I love, spread it, so. I loved what we when we chatted last year and you talked about, you know, the comparison of diabetes and HIV and medication and insulin and you know, we, we it's like the stigma we have around HIV, the, the the label, but actually we wouldn't think twice about diabetes. It's no, like, that's right. So people get as as a, again, it's about normalizing it, it's about normalizing, getting tested. It's hard because people are nervous. People are nervous to find out that they have something that's, in a way, going to alter how they feel about themselves. So you know, and then they and from friends of mine that you then get used to the idea you're on treatment, you're undetectable. It's it's part and parcel of of solving the problem. Really, Just the difference is now to when people were first diagnosed with HIV, um, and it wasn't HIV then; it was AIDS. You didn't have HIV. Is that it's no now? It's no longer a death sentence. The moment you were diagnosed years ago, that was it. You knew there was an absolutely no hope, but the advancements in treatments and everything else has been incredible, absolutely incredible, and it is no longer a death sentence, which is, you know, thank God. But before, it was, no. And, that, and I think that some people still have that in their mind of like, I don't want to know if I'm going to die. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like if somebody asked you, I know which day you're going to die. Do you want to know? 
what would you do? I, I wouldn't want to know. I really wouldn't. Because then you, well, I, you live you, your life you, through. It, it's scared every single day of your life. Well, there's, you know, lots of questions about that very famous AIDS campaign. You know, one of the questions that comes up actually in the logbooks with some of the people that, that you interviewed saying, did it go too far? Did it create a fear that actually was so long lasting that it's permeated generation after generation? that people, you know, was it a little bit over the top? And, and it's, it's a really difficult one to actually sort of, um, sort of consider because, you, you know, the, the information delivery was so different then. I mean, it's really fascinating just to go sidetrack. Is that I've found, I pulled out this album from my attic, which is Red Hot and Blue, which you, you will remember was a, an, uh, an AIDS benefit album. And what's really fascinating is that this is, you know, pre the internet, this is pre mobile phones. Some, there's no record in there, I took, took the records out. Um, is information about HIV and AIDS. So this was one of the this is one of the few ways that these organisations could disseminate information about AIDS. That I, I brought this one in because inside this cover is and this is amazing. This is an the Age of Consent Bronski beat. Fantastic album. Oh, I remember album. this. And I remember there being a list of all the Age of Consents yeah. in all the countries in all the world. And in my in my head, I thought this was a huge sheet. And when I was looking for it, I was going, oh, maybe I imagined it. And it, it is actually there. It's there. It's the tiniest bit of copy with all the age of consent. And this was a way of wow. getting this bit of information to kids, 14-year-old little gay boys in mining villages in Yorkshire, were finally be able to realise that how, you know, the discrimination against us. And while well, well, I've got the talking stick, the way that really I feel like two minds about that AIDS campaign is because I think I was of the view, and sort of afterwards, it was an awful lot of money spent producing leaflets to send to people who had very little chance of ever coming into contact with HIV. But actually, unbeknown to the government at the time, um, they put in Gay Switchboard's telephone number, didn't they? And I don't think even members, people who put it together knew that. So basically, um, the Thatcher government in the 80s managed to put Gay Switchboard's telephone number into the letterbox of every single... <laughs> and I just think, oh my God, what a fantastic own goal. Well, it was great, but it also <laughs> broke the phone lines. <laughs> it really did. I mean, Switchboard um, in those days had had a, had a running problem with its phone lines. Um, just technically, there was just problems with it. Um, and uh, that if you <laughs> if you read the logbooks of the volunteers, um, as I've done for the making the podcast, there's like for years and years, half not half, but a lot of the logbook entries where volunteers are like reporting on what's happened on their shift so that the volunteers on the next shift can just follow what's been going on as well as the subjects and the questions that have been coming up on the call so they can all continue to be aware um in addition to things like you know barry from birmingham rang, rang again he's been kicked out of home for being gay again um you've also got things like can someone please bring fresh tea bags because we've got none and then you've also got this running commentary of how bad the phone lines are and how hard it is to get bt engineers to come and fix the phone lines and then in 1987 when the number was as you say printed and went to 13 million households in the uk um they were inundated with phone calls and a lot of them were what they what the volunteers called from the worried well which was predominantly people who were not at risk of um hiv at all um and they were confused about this leaflet and about the campaign that they'd seen and what they'd been reading in the newspaper because it was like mostly horror and bullshit 
Um, and they were calling Switchboard for help, and, but Switchboard had to take those calls and it had to explain to people, like, again, like what this is and what's happening and if you know anybody and this is what to do and all of that stuff. Tell the story about the BT engineers that wouldn't come round. Well, you just did. There you go. That, I mean, that was another thing. Sorry. <laughs> There's more to it than That's that. That's what, I mean, yeah, they, um, so that actually, they, the, um, you know, they would try and get the BT engineers to come round. Um, and uh, there was an appointment one day where some BT engineers were coming around to fix the phone lines. And when they arrived at the building, and Switchboard back then didn't have a sign on the door. Um, obviously, you, you couldn't... Um, it was just a... It, it was and is just a phone line. You can't go to the office as a, um, as a person asking for help. Um, the office was for volunteers. Um, and they didn't have a sign on the door because they often had um, death threats and bombs and stuff. Um, and uh, but when the engineers realised what the business, the charity that they were going to visit was, um, they refused to enter the building because they thought that just working on the phone lines and um, that they were at risk of HIV because that's the level of ignorance that they have. But you said level of ignorance. It's it is unbelievable because we yeah totally absolutely we as a community um, we weren't told anything about how to prevent AIDS or HIV or anything else when it, when it all came out. We weren't told anything. Um, we had no information. We had nothing. And as a community, we kind of had to teach ourselves. We had to learn ourselves on how to do it and, and what was going to happen and, and how to deal with it. And we did. The Terence Higgins Trust and everybody else, it did. To a point when the new cases of HIV were actually with heterosexuals. Um, because they didn't believe, they still didn't believe for some reason that they could actually get it. it they still kind of saw it with the words, I used this the other day actually talking to somebody else, that it was called a gay plague. And those words are just, you know, like, what, really? And there are still some people out there who do believe that it is still a gay disease. Well, talking about that ignorance, it just reminded me of Paul O'Grady when the police came to do the raid on the Vauxhall Tavern. You probably, a lot of people saw that. And they came in with the rubber gloves on and Paul O'Grady said, well, it's great someone's come to do the washing up. <laughs> the, I just remembered maybe the other story that you're thinking of with Switchboard as well is um, a camera crew came to film volunteers that work at Switchboard. Um, and they came in and um, put all of their like expensive camera equipment down and then was talking about what they were going to be doing. And they, it was like for a daytime TV show. And they, um, when they realized that it was a, um, you know, then they would, back then they would have said a gay and lesbian organization, um, the cameramen um, like left, the camera operators left and refused to do it. And the volunteer at the time, who was um, kind of handling it because she was the media person, is the legend that is Lisa Power. Um, and she said, right, well, I'm keeping your cameras until you come back and do this job. I'm going to hold on to them. Um, but going back to our theme of history and why it's important, because we've been like just occupying this particular moment in the mid to late 80s right now, um, and you're talking about how um, we as a community had to come together and learn how to deal with this and um, share information and support and care for each other. Um, uh, what happened last summer with MPOX was really quite incredible mm. because, and we wouldn't, it, we would still be, um, MPOX is still out there, it's not eradicated, but 
we would be in a completely different situation right now this summer yeah. with MPOX after a year of it if it hadn't have been for HIV AIDS and everything that yeah. we as a community had learned that um, that clinicians had learned and that the various organi amazing organizations and charities and community groups that work at the local level and the national level um, if they had not um, come together and learn the le like they they they'd been practicing these lessons for years about testing and about how to lobby government and about how to do education that doesn't shame people for having the sex that they're going to be having anyway, um, and just making sure that there's provision for them um, to get tested or to get treatment and everything like that. Um, and Mpox is feels in a weird way at the moment like this summer. You know, I, it just feels like oh my god, I keep thinking, did that happen? Because I remember visiting friends. Um, who were sick last summer and I remember f having this like weird like ghost whiplash effect as if I had been in the in that maelstrom in the mid 80s like you all were and I remember because I'd heard enough of these stories um, and I remember having this weird whiplash which wasn't my own whiplash because I hadn't experienced it but I remember like seeing my friends being sick and thinking shit this is awful and then gradually we dealt with it and we worked with it and we got a vaccine rollout and everything like that and then it, it's faded. Um, and as I said, it's not gone away completely, but we wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, COVID, I mean, obviously that was a very tricky time. And again, normal life has resumed, you know, you kind of forget that actually it was a really, it was a bit of a shitstorm for two years. So, you know, did that bring back memories of that time as well? Because I can only imagine it was... So many similarities. And what, what, what a more funny one. I, I remember in the 80s, you, you couldn't move for rubber. Rubber was everywhere. And you would go into a gay bar and there would be bowls of rubbers and rubbish. You would open a magazine and 300 rubbers would fall out. It was, and there were posters in every, the back of every toilet telling you to put a hat on it. I mean, rubbers, rubbers, rubbers. And actually to the point that actually STDs generally in gay men dropped through the floor because everyone was covered in rubber. And just about two days after lockdown, my uh, housemate, who was actually here, um, put, a, uh, put a message on the inside of our door which said, <laughs> clean your hands, you filthy bitches. And I just thought, oh my God, this is like, this, this is, this, 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 we're actually reminder. using the same kind of paraphernalia to remind us to protect ourselves. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, the whole COVID thing was, it was very strange. It was, it did feel like it was something, you know, reliving everything again. But then monkeypox as well, because um, my dearest friend um, contracted it and was actually really, really ill, really ill. Um, to point, I was, I got really worried about him. Um, he couldn't lift his head up off the pillow. He did no energy, no nothing. And it was like revisiting memories of friends who were ill from HIV or AIDS. And, and that was horrible. That was really horrible. Um, I mean, it was one of those things of, you know, I, couldn't, I couldn't touch you because it you know, spread through contact and things like that. And when I got a, a phone call from the hospital telling me that I'd come into contact with someone with monkeypox, I was like, excuse me, what, what, what? And I had to go and, and was vaccinated and it was fine. But watching somebody go through that again, it was like reliving it all over again. And it, it was like, please, this can't happen. This really can't happen. Luckily, it hasn't. Um, but it was there was a point where it was scary and thinking scary. this could literally just take over again. But also, the, the climate has changed so dramatically. I mean, I, I just remember, and you remember this, it was day in, day out. The, it wasn't enough that people were 
you know, terrible constant illnesses, but were blamed for it. Mm. And, you know, you would only have to have a newspaper and it was just, you were basically told that you deserved it. Um, And and you kind of, day in, day out, you would would believe that. And I think this time there wasn't that sort of, they did, you you saw the odd sort of article and it was a bit like, you know, making that connection with the game, but there wasn't the kind of vitriol and the real sort of... No, but I think what was... What was different um, with AIDS when that started was that everybody assumed that just because you were gay, you had it. That was it. It was, it was like it came you know, part and parcel. The moment you came out, you got AIDS. That was it. It didn't matter what you were doing or how you were living your life. You had AIDS. And that was a big stigma. Yeah. And that, and that, and that you, you reminded me when you were saying about the rubbers, is that whoever fathomed what dry kissing was. Yes. Because they said you could only, you can't kiss, you must only dry kiss. So anyone hands up who's worked that out. We, yeah. Nobody ever knew that. what that was. So there was some very strange... I can see everyone's right now, brains going. Right now. Do you know what I kind of get from the time though? And, and again, there's, there's so much more to talk about. But I think a real sense of community... And I think that what you're all saying is that it was a really tough time, but actually community really pulled together. Would you all agree with that? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it was one of those things where you actually, you felt for the first time, personally anyway, I felt like I actually belonged to something. That there was some other people out there who understood, who got me and was there for the first time. And it was a shame that it actually took all of that that was going on to make me feel like that. It pushed us too far. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to mess with an angry... Oh, hell no. Oh, no. no well, I remember they just got into the Keep, which is the Sussex Archive, which is that huge concrete building up near the university. They have some gay magazines written by um, gay men and women for, in Brighton from the 70s and 80s. But it's really fascinating when you read the letters pages, and they've all been printed off on these gestetners, you know? It's all like those wax reels that used to sort of print off six or seven copies at a time. And there's no... The, the dialogue between the lesbians and the gay men it's almost like he said, she said, she said, oh, and she said, and it's all... And then suddenly, by about sort of 1985, they start to sort of come together, and it is ironic that it actually took this to really bring people together um, and, you know, go on marches about it. Do we bring up the chestnut of Section 28 and Thatcher? Because <laughs> I guess that is another pivotal moment in that time, isn't it? And I guess on the back of you know, the AIDS and HIV epidemic. And then you've got, you know, that statement at that Conservative Party conference and that then affected schooling for so many and education. And I mean... I mean, yeah, it does. I mean, personally, um, and this is what... You can say I'm exaggerating or being dramatic. I don't give a shit. But um, personally, I don't like talking about that woman because she destroyed so much for so many people. Um, I would had come from a, a mining village and... and what she did and everything else and Clause 28 and the whole thing. If you want me to be furious and start stomping around this stage, then let's do it. But, it, yes, it was, it was unbelievable. There is that brilliant scene in, in It's a Sin where he's looking... Where in the library, looking, looking through the library. Oh, incredible. It's a brilliant scene and Absolutely. he's just said, there's nothing, there is nothing. I can't even find a reference to... And that's, that is a huge omission of our society as a whole. I mean, that, that's really it quite is. I mean, the, incredible. The thing is that Clause 28 was ludicrous. It was so ludicrous that 
not even, you know, not only could being homosexual not be talked about or anything else, not, not even a mention of it, but any writer or painter or anything else that was gay, their work wasn't allowed to be discussed, taught, anything. So you had all these incredible works just thrown out and that was it, done. Never to be, you know, and it was just absolutely insane. That's and he's like, that's not, that's not publicising homosexuality. That's just getting rid of culture. Yeah, that's why there's so much to be discovered, I think. That's why there's so much out there. And when you watch them, uh, like Gentleman Jack, for instance, that was, that was a real, like, an amazing eye-opener for a, a you know, the TV series that people... What, a, what never ceases to amaze me is that people did lead very full gay lives in complete secret and many, many years before we were born. Many years, like right, you know, right back in the Victorian times, right back. And I can't speak of cases that I know, but it's it's fascinating and an amazing stories out there when you when you read about yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that. You, you see some photographs of you know, like from Victorian era and things like that. You know, sepia photographs and the whole thing, and you know, it's two men kissing and stuff. And you go, this is incredible to see these 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 two men who, at the time, because it was so secretive would have probably been so much in love with each other to actually take the risks of having a picture taken. Was it, it, it's just, I love seeing those pictures because it's beautiful to see. Since we're breaking the rule of time, because we're going further back in time than 1980. <laughs> Sorry. Because um, Jill's taken us to the Victorian era. I am the oldest up here. No, lo I love it. I love a, a hot daddy Victorian with a beard and a top hat. Um... But what if you do go back a lot further, you start to see the cycles. So if we think about Section 28 coming in um, in 1988, but being debated in um, Parliament in 1987, at that time of that tsunami of hatred in the press stirred up by um, the responses to HIV AIDS, um, you see, um, you know, powerful people, elite people who are trying to clamp down on people living their free lives and living, living their truth, as the Californians say. Um, and then that is a, a wave that happens, um, that, that comes up. It's this cycle that you mentioned earlier. And so going even further, you know, yes, you talk about it in the Victorian time. And then in the, I, I'm obsessed with the 1920s and the 1930s and that shift that just happened. Uh, well, it wasn't just, it was gradual, but it, looking back, it seems like it just happened. You know, we talk about the roaring 20s um, in places like Berlin and London and New York and, um, you know, freewheeling, sexual culture, uh, gender fuckery, people living in all sorts of uh, combinations of relationships and with different kinds of gender expressions. And um, it's amazing. And then the development of art at the time especially cinema, which is something that really um, kind of fascinates me, how there was this new technology um, that had become big enough by the, by the late 20s that it was 
an industry, the film industry, and um, there was a new technology on um, being added, which was sound, that was going to revolutionise what cinema could be. And there were li- lots of different kinds of filmmakers and artists experimenting what, with what cinema could be. Um, there's, uh, you know, the amazing work from like 1918, 1919, showing like a gay relationship in a film in Berlin, sympathetically on the side of the gay man that gets blackmailed um, for being gay. Um, and then through the 20s, you have these silent movies where you've got like different kinds of characters. Pandora's Box has the most fam- has the most important famous lesbian dance scene. Um, and then, uh, and, and you know, they're really experimenting with all of this. And then the combination of um, censors in London who are politically motivated because they think cinema is this thing for the masses and basically this is going to incite some kind of revolution if like the working class see um, all these different kinds of representations. And in America you've got Catholics who are taking over the film industry being motivated by their religion. And then in Germany you've got the fascists taking over. So 29, 30, 31, 32... Um, what is possible within art, what is possible to be represented, the variousness of our lives and our bodies gets cut down. And the Nazis literally take films, important films, which were popular, and they literally burn them in those fires. And so you see this cycle going over and over again when you go further back, and then you also, we're having it right now. We're in a cycle, we're in that cycle right now. We're in the, I hope it's the depths of it, but I fear that, we are still going to go deeper um, into this backlash, um, into the people who are clamping down on the freedoms. And right now we know it's our trans siblings and our non-binary siblings that are bearing the brunt of it. So again, thinking about our history, um, that's why it's important because you can just see this for what it is. And I think that that can get us through it when we're in the middle of it because we've seen it and we know that we've fought back before and we can again. Yeah, it's like it's like you push us too far, and we will fight back, and that has been the cycle of queer history. But that's something that I think, um, as a community, we've we've done for years and years, and I think we will continue to, and we will always do it. Is that we don't have anybody else; we only have each other. So, the only way we're going to get through it is with each other. But what I would say is, that, again, very triggering in the logbooks thing was the footage of the queer, the, the, gay, the gay riot, as it was called, uh, in the newspapers at the time outside the Houses of Parliament. And there was three chaps. Ralph was one of them. And I was working for Stonewall at the time. And I can't remember the other two guys' names. But basically, they, were, they took the, the government to court and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember being outside the Houses of Parliament and one of them comes out and screams something like, they fucking... Yeah fucked us over or something like that um, because they reduced it to 16, not 18. And sorry, I do do have a point ultimately. And I think what was really interesting about when you, this is going back to your point about only having ourselves. I think what happened in my circle of friends at that riot where we, we, we lost getting the age of consent down to 16, that we all had a discussion afterwards in someone's flat and said, if you've not come out to your parents, you've got to do it now. And actually, I think it actually did trigger a lot of young people coming out to their parents and I think once the parents were on board that did change uh, a lot of people you know because a lot of people would have been very surprised that their parents that their kids were gay we are like there is so much to talk about but I'm really conscious of time as well so I'm so so I'm gonna have to kind of move it on um so I, I you know I was thinking about all the things that I guess 
has happened over the recent kind of 20 years or so. Great progress has been made. Um, so Section 28 was eradicated, um, equal legal, legal age of consent, civil partnerships, equal marriage, adoption rights. You've mentioned, you know, our trans siblings are having the tough time at the moment. What else do we need to do to keep evolving the history? I mean, these conversations are incredibly important. And I think that, you know, with programs like It's a Sin or the great literature out there and podcasts, we get to attract new audiences that maybe won't be aware of this kind of stuff that we're talking about. But how do we keep evolving that conversation? I think the only way we can do it is just to constantly keep talking about it and making sure that we do stand up, um, <clears throat> not just for ourselves, <clears throat> but for every other member of our community. It's like our trans siblings and everything else. I will be the f one of the first people standing up there and going, no, we have to, we have to do this. Just because it doesn't affect our lives personally, doesn't mean to say that we can't do something about it. We have to stick together on it. But we also need to do it in a way that is interesting yeah. to, uh, to a wi wider yeah. community. That doesn't look like it's yeah. just some I mean, people standing up I, shouting. I, I think that some, we sat here today after anyone who watches RuPaul, the latest series, the big event on Saturday was Joan Crawford, the Rusical, the unofficial Rusical. And it was, it was really revealing because obviously a lot of the queens in there, they, they're not that familiar with, with Mommy Dearest. But actually, this is a very famous film, if anyone's never seen it, about Joan Crawford. And she basically left her daughter nothing in the will. And, and her daughter's revenge was to write this warts and all film about her. Um, and this is one of the most quotable um, I think films in the in the in the queer community, and I think what 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 is interesting about that is that RuPaul, I think, is being quite subversive, and I think actually quite sort of um, um, political, but in a very amusing way. Um, and I think that you know that is one of the ways that actually we can keep our history alive and actually make it more interesting to new generations of people. Um, you know, sadly, not everyone is like me that likes wandering around museums and looking into dusty cabinets. But pull them in as as you can. I guess it's really important to do that. Absolutely. Um, before the interval, want to shout out. So we've got two incredible, well, three incredible books for sale tonight. Um, I'm going to be your bookseller as well. So we have Love from the Pink Palace uh, by Jill. We've got Britonians uh, by Darren. And we have uh, Deep Sniff, um, History of Poppers and Queer Futures. We haven't even talked about poppers yet, have we? No. <laughs> Who we're going to run poppers? out of time. Come see me at the break. Oh, we've got <laughs> two hands there at least. But um, Adam, I'd love it if you could give a shout out about your book and tell us about that. And then Darren's going to do a reading before we uh, we move forward with the, the interval. So can you tell us about your, your book? Yeah, my my book is uh, Deep Sniff. It's it is a history of poppers, uh, which um, goes back to 1844 when the substance amyl nitrite was first synthesized, and a really special, amazing moment in 1867 when it was first given to a medical patient to help with his angina. Um, and it also did other things. Um, and that happened to occur just also at the same moment that a lawyer in Germany, um, my boyfriend, Karl Heinrich Ulrich, um, gay rights pioneer, stood up in front of an audience of lawyers and, uh, legal and academics and legal professionals um, as a lawyer himself and said, I'm gay in the law here against sodomy is wrong and we need to change that and perhaps that was the first time anyone publicly came out on and said that on a forum like that and 
that's got nothing to do with the history of Popper's the actual thing. It's just it happened at the same moment in 1867. So there's a kind of improbable connection there um, in, the, in that particular history, in that particular moment. And so the book goes kind of from that moment all the way through to um, the 1970s and how Popper's became... Like a, like a product as part of, uh, and specific, specifically marketed at gay men in San Francisco and London um, with brand names and, you know, amazingly inventive masculine brand names like Fist and Iron Horse and XXX, stuff like that, very clever marketing. And how it kind of created the idea of like a perfect gay man who was like virile and strong because he sniffed poppers and because of the artwork that they used in the adverts. Um, and then it goes through to the stories of the 80s and how Poppers was actually um, fingered, as it were, as a cause of HIV AIDS by people that wanted that to be the case because it would help continue to point the blame at gay people, gay men, um, all the way through the 80s and then all the way up through to like modern day and um, people sniffing Poppers in Zoom calls and wanking with each other. Amazing. So I was just worried we were going to get the hand dryer in on the, um, the audio, but hopefully we won't. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's incredible. Um, the book is on uh, sale today, so we'll be selling copies uh, very, very shortly, but thank you for that. Um, and we also have um, a reading from Darren. Now, Darren, I'm very excited about this because this is your brand new book, which this isn't is my, even out my yet. It's brand new, but this is a sequel to The Brightonians, so it's probably not coming out till November, so you've got plenty of time to read The Brightonians um, if, you, uh, if, you, if you're a slow reader. Um, so this is called Brightonians Under Siege and it starts in January 2020, uh, just a few months before COVID. And it starts with a, a fortune teller called Pagan Pete who has a reading that he hasn't had since 1984 when he started to hear about something called the gay plague. So he's absolutely terrified that coronavirus is going to be like like AIDS. And so the novel really is a, it's a satirical novel about the way that the world uh, responded to um, COVID compared to how terribly it responded to HIV and AIDS. And um, in the excerpt that I've chosen, because it's all about history, I've chosen an expert, an excerpt, an expert, an excerpt which is pumped full of queer history. Um, and there are two characters that you'll meet in this. The first of them is um, George, who's one of the main characters. George, um, aka Bet Your Sweet Ass who is a 73-year-old drag queen, so obviously nothing, not based at all on Cara, who's, who's 21, 21 in a day. And um, George has had a very checkered past. In the 60s, he was a, a teenage porn star, and that's covered in the uh, first novel. Um, he was a member of the uh, Gay Liberation Front. He was then involved in the fight against um, AIDS and HIV, uh, and Clause 28. And so he is um, the font of knowledge, and he is the reason why the other character is visiting him this day. Um, she is called Isabel Pitt, and she's a museum curator, and she's writing a history of Brighton's rich queer heritage. So George is the, uh, the font of all knowledge on this. So she goes around there the day before lockdown. So this is like the 22nd of, um, of, of March. And she's got two reasons she's going around. One of them is to return a yellow handkerchief, which will become clear in a second. Um, and the other reason that she's going around there is to learn more about these outrageous gay discos, which happened in the late 
late 70s, early 80s at a fruit farm in uh, Headcorn, Kent called Hazel Pits. And there's something else that she is also going to find out about, which is a group of um, motorcycle fetishists um, called the Sussex Lancers. And both these genuinely exist. And I know this because Alpha Floic is the world expert on the Sussex Lancers and also the gay discos in, the, in this fruit farm in a barn in Kent. And um, so if you want to learn more about those, then do go to Alpha Floic's website because it's absolutely fascinating. And there is another piece of history that you will also um, be aware of already, so I won't go into. Um, there was one tiny little bit of information you need, context, is Isabel Pitt is mid-50s. She's very tall and willowy. And her um, arch enemy in the novel, Cameron, um, describes her um, as behind her back as bottomless pit. Nudging up as close to the old man as she felt she could, given the reason for the impending lockdown. In the next half an hour or so, Izzy was introduced to the Studio 54 party at Hazel Pits. Of course, with a little help, she recognised George. But who was the gorgeous blonde hunk who appeared frequently throughout the album in various guises? After the Andy Warhol get-up, he popped up as some sort of naval officer at what George remembered as the Titanic party. Another infamous themed night at Hazel Pits that was made even more memorable by the arrival of a terrific thunderstorm, which apparently caused mayhem in the designated dark room when the usual pitch-back anonymity was interrupted every few seconds with bright flashes of lightning. Oh yes, red cheeks all round that night. I can tell you, said George, giggling at the memory and turning to a spread, featuring a group of men dressed in leather biker gear. Oh, let me guess, darling. Uh, Greece or maybe the wild ones, suggested Izzy, assuming the photographs of the men in the peat caps, adorned with chains and studs, had been taken at another of those outrageous costume parties in Kent. Good no, dear, replied George. That's a meeting of the Sussex Lancers, a motorcycle fetish club. Men who liked men who liked bikes, or rather men who liked men who liked to dress like they liked bikes. I don't remember many of them actually owning a bike. Oh, exclaimed Izzy. But before she had time to digest this new information, fuck, cried the old man. What, shrieked Izzy, assuming George had spotted something disturbing. F-U-K-C, the Federation of UK Clubs, explained George, tugging a piece of paper at paper out from beneath the album's plastic sheeting and waving it in front of her. It's what they used to put on their flyers and posters. The Lancers were just one of several affiliated clubs that exist across the country. Oh, I see, replied Izzy, before, before returning her gaze to the photographs. Oh, God, I'd forgotten all about those chaps, said George, taking a closer look at a photo he'd removed from the plastic film. Who, said Izzy, expecting to be introduced to a couple of Sussex Lancers. Not who, dear, chaps, bottomless trousers, said George, handing her the photograph for inspection. Thrown a little by the word bottomless, a phrase forever associated with the cruel nickname she knew that Cameron called her behind her back, the pert posteriors at which she was now staring did wonders to take her mind off the insult. Ah, I see. Like what cowboys used to wear, darling, she, she, she suggested. Yes, though without the leather jock straps, I expect, added George. Indeed, agreed Izzy, trying to think about how she could move the conversation on. But before an appropriate opportunity presented itself, she spotted something in the photo that stopped her in her tracks, the mustard-coloured handkerchief she'd just handed back to George. More than that, she recognised the man in whose back pocket it was shoved. It was the handsome blonde again. 
Oh my goodness, she said. Is that your handkerchief? Yes, it is. Of course, back then it belonged to this fella here, a Danish friend of mine called Odie Olofsson, short for Odin, said George, stroking the man's face. But it wasn't just a hanky. It was a sort of code, letting people know what sort of sex you were into. We used to call it flagging. There were loads of different colours, continued George, as Izzy scanned the photo, and it made a difference which pocket you wore it in too. F-U-K-C, chaps, colour-coded erotic semiotics. It seemed to Izzy that George was speaking another language. Eager to learn more, she edged closer to the old man. I'm pretty sure that black meant you were into S&M, and light blue that you liked oral, he continued, pointing to the behinds of two men stood close to Odie, and of course red and yellow were very kinky. How fascinating, said Izzy warily, not sure whether her nerves could cope with whatever these colours might have denoted. She quickly decided it would be best to shift the focus to the one in the pocket of the handsome blonde. And what about mustard, Odie's handkerchief? Well, said George, his cheeks cheeky grin causing deep ridges to appear in his old cheeks, in the right pocket, it means you want a big one. And in the left, it means you've got one to give. Feeling her own cheeks starting to redden, she decided not to pursue this line of chat any further. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you, Darren. Thank you so much. So we're going to take a break. I'm going to sell some books. And um, please come and buy some because we'd like to sell them all tonight. And um, yeah, we'll take a break and then we'll come back for an audience Q&A. So um, thank you all very, very much. Big round of applause for my guests. The conversation doesn't stop here. Check out the next part of this podcast episode on your streaming platform. You will not be disappointed. I really hope you enjoyed the show. A big thank you once again to all my guests. Please share the podcast, give it a five-star review if you'd like, and leave any comments you may have. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok for all the latest updates on Queer I Am, the podcast. Also, check out my website, www.fluiactually.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.